Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, there are concerns that the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs won't wait until the city makes a move on the arena. Councillor Chad Collins is concerned that the delays on Pier 6 and 7 may be made unnecessarily longer, and a report suggesting that Russia could be meddling in our election next month due to growing interest in the Arctic. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, arena issue continues uh, to fester. Uh, there are concerns right now that uh, Michael Andler, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, uh, won't wait until the city makes a move on a new arena or a rejuvenated downtown one, whatever the case is, that council is going to decide. Uh, there's going to be a meeting about this on Wednesday, of course, at council, to uh, either reiterate or to uh, start massaging, shall we say, uh, some of the motions and some of the ideas that they've been kicking around for the last little while. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Terry Whitehead, City Councilor uh, for the West Mountain. Uh, Terry, thank you for the time. Great you could join us today. That's great to be Bill, uh, with you, Bill, and your listeners. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about what Council is facing right now. And I, I'm sure you follow social media, and you've seen some of the posts uh, on, on Twitter and on Facebook, for that matter. And I, I, I fear that this is starting to, to fester just like the stadium issue did, and I don't want to compare that as an apples-to-apples. But one of the things I'm seeing here is, is some misrepresentations of, of who's saying what and who's asking what at this stage. Uh, maybe maybe we could kind of go down a list here and you could maybe add some clarity to this. Uh, Michael Andlar is not demanding that you build a new arena. Is, is that fair to say? City Council are the ones who decided that they, that, to follow the Ernst & Young report and build a new arena, or at least Correct. explore the idea. Correct. Okay. So let's let's get that off the table. Uh, now, let's talk about timelines, because I think that seems to be the sticking point right now. Uh, and, and the alternatives, uh, and I know that you've had some discussions with Esther Pauls, the counselor for Ward 7, uh, about the possibility of, of at least exploring the idea up around Lime Ridge Mall. Uh, there seems to be some confusion about what your stand is on that. Maybe you could clarify that. Do you support the idea of studying that possible location, Terry? Yeah, I mean, this is much more complex than you think. I mean, one is, uh, and you are a counselor, and uh, you can appreciate that uh, our forefathers, uh, our counselors, had a dream. And they had a dream uh, to pursue an NHL team, and they built the Cops Coliseum at 17,500. Certainly it hasn't manifested itself at this point, but it doesn't mean you give up on a dream. And you just talk about Bianca, who had a dream, and she lived her dream this weekend. Many athletes will tell you that you can't let go of a dream. So I, I guess one of the concerns I have is, uh, one that through the columns of scale, 10,000 seat arena downtown really isn't going to drive a whole heck of a lot. Period. Two, all the examples of development in uh, TIF uh, uh, financing uh, primary are uh, NHL size arenas. Edmonton, now Calgary's looking at it, LA. Uh, so we're, it's columns of scale. We're really not comparing an apple to apple comparison. And lastly, if you build a 10,000 seat arena downtown, that, and there was an opportunity in the future for an NHL team. You just uh, messed up a, a possibility of an 18,000-seat arena being built there because now you already have a pre-existing arena. So I think uh, it, it's problematic for many reasons. So you're still holding out hope, or you haven't given up on that dream, I guess, of, of still pursuing a National Hockey League team. You know what? No one achieves anything if they give up a dream. And this was a dream of this community. This is uh, Certainly you, you saw the, uh, the, the community... Uh, 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 arrive at, you know, we had the, the seven, uh, make it seven uh, rallies and the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people writing and emailing and, and buying uh, season tickets. I mean, the reality is there is a desire in this community. And, uh, you know, that's pretty deflating when you basically not only taking down the 18,000 uh, seat arena you currently have, 
which, by the way, is 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 not you know I I can live with that. But now you're going to build a ten thousand seat arena in the downtown area, which now all but uh, rules out any possibility in the future of building large arena facilitated HL team. So you might as well give that dream uh, a stamp goodbye completely. And I I'm, I don't subscribe to that. So Michael Andler needs an arena. Uh, that's that's one. Yeah, so that's, that's one. That's the original that's, question. I I support. I don't think that we doing a precinct study for arena or whatever downtown is. Uh, I support. I mean, I support it from day one. But to suggest a uh, 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 Mike Landler, who has a time sensitivity issue with an OHL current tenant uh, and has been cleared by our consultant, you need a tenant, an anchor tenant. He's making it clear that timing is an issue. And when you look at the conv- how convoluted the uh, the downtown piece is. In practical terms, I just can't see in, in, in our lifetime that this could be achieved within the five years uh, window that uh, I think Antler's put out there as a, a critical time frame. Well, let's let's talk about that. And I know you can't get into specifics, Terry, and I know you had some discussions in, in camera behind closed doors about bandying some numbers around. And we, we can't really do that, but let, let, we can talk a little bit about process. Uh, and if city council is going to stay married to this idea that this arena, if they're going to build it, it's going to have to be downtown, period, end of sentence. And that is what some of your colleagues are saying. Uh, as you mentioned, there are a number of different steps and roadblocks in some cases uh, that you're going to have to go through as a city council. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, you, I hope we don't repeat the idea of the stadium. Let's knock down one of the one we have and build it in the exact same location. Uh, because that way, you know, the, the, your major tenant there has got nowhere to play hockey for the next couple of years. Right. So, right. so you've got to go find some land, and it may actually still be land that you own, but there could be zoning issues. There's a number of things that you have to go through, and that it takes time. And and I know that the Ernst & Young consultant told you last week that it could be within five years, uh, which sounds like an awfully long time, especially if you're a Michael Andelard that's dumping an awful lot of money into this franchise and, frankly, into this old arena now, too. Kent and, and is five years is ideal, uh, looking at an ideal situation. So if you have to go with expropriation, you have to go... Uh, willing buyer, uh, willing purchaser, you know, willing uh, uh, seller, or you're talking about a significant amount of money the city has to put forward in the context, and, and yet we still have our own capital challenges. Uh, there, there's so many things that can go wrong uh, with this time frame that's been put out there, and I can understand and appreciate why Emma has some concerns. Where you got something more of a sure thing and has less complexities versus something something that's very complex with the downtown uh, precinct development. And your point's well taken, Terry. I mean, that five-year time frame that uh, Ernst & Young talked about, that's a best-case scenario. Uh, the, you know, as you say, there's expropriation. There could be some court challenges to that. Uh, there could be a number of things that go on that can drag this thing on for years, really, uh, well beyond that five years, uh, as opposed to what Mr. Andelar is talking about up at Lime Ridge Mall, where I, I'm not suggesting it's easy-peasy to get it done, but it'd be a lot easier because you've already got a willing landlord there uh, who's saying, yeah, let's, let's bring this on. Uh, so I know there's some I's to dot and some T's to cross in situations like this, but he feels that that project could be completed and they could be playing hockey on that within two years of getting the okay from city council. That's a huge difference. Uh, absolutely. I think there's a timing and, and, and the predictability uh, that's a concern in, uh, for an analyst. From my perspective, again, is a, is a bigger picture here. You know, we're, we're going to be a metropolitan. We are geographically we're located. You're looking at the population growth. You're looking at what's happening in Hamilton. And to suggest that from a kinds of scale, that uh, a 10,000-seat arena, uh, is, is meant to be built in our downtown. I'm having some concerns. I mean, I always envision a, a new 18,000 or renovation of the Cops Coliseum uh, because certainly 18,000 through a cause of scale would obviously draw a lot of interest in our, in our downtown. A 10,000, I just don't think it has the same play. 
So you you would suggest if if council really feels as if they want to build a ten thousand seat arena, it should go someplace other than the downtown core. Correct, because I think uh, as we understand and appreciate the, the the dream. One, two, we know this community is growing remarkably, uh, uh, and three, uh, by putting an arena, a ten thousand uh, a seat arena in your downtown, you're all about saying see you later, NHL. Uh, we're never going to be putting another arena in our downtown. So you, basically, you want to reserve the downtown core for that possibility, that NHL Correct. dream that you're, you're. If you're not Correct. embracing it, you're still having dismissed it anyway. Correct, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that we uh, at this point in time need to take a look, a serious look at taking cops coliseum down. But what I'm saying is, by putting a, a small ten thousand seat arena in an otherwise very fast growing community, uh, it concerns me that you're now basically uh, uh, shutting off all possibilities in the future. All right. If you do that, and, and I'm I'm not I'm I'm sharing Michael Andler's skepticism. That your council colleagues will will go along with that. But let's let's assume for a second that they do. Uh, in the meantime, so the, the the main tenant leaves and goes and plays in this new arena, this ten thousand seat arena, uh, and Cops Coliseum, well, first Ontario Centre as it is now, uh, sits there basically empty. I mean, I guess there can be trade shows. There's going to be a few major concerts. But what do you do with that building then? Uh, sorry, if you well, first of all, it would be nice. I think that you're always going to run. Uh, 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 I think the idea is that you would run the current anchor, which is uh, Anders' team, in the Comps Coliseum, for example. If you're looking to build another arena, and you wouldn't build on the same site because the last thing you want to do when it comes to concerts and markets, and, and certainly uh, your anchor tenant, is to have uh, uh, very little, if not no, activity for a period of time because you can lose that market share. So. Uh, so you would have to run it concurrently in the context of building another arena in or downtown. Well, I, I, I think that Mr. Andelar is aware of that, that if he had some assurance that there was going to be a new arena built within two years, I'm sure he would be happy to stay in First Ontario Centre during that construction period of two years. I don't, I don't yeah. think that's a problem at all. And, no. and, and I don't think Mike, Mr. Andelar, can, I just, we had him on the show last week talking about this, uh, I didn't get the impression that he was saying, build this for me or I'm leaving. He's saying, if you can't build it in a timely fashion, I may be forced to leave. Correct. That's very accurate. That's all, what you've indicated is very accurate. I don't think all he wants is he's got a time-sensitive issue. He's, he's, he's taking money out of his pocket to subsidize the, the team still being here, and he's looking for a greater opportunity. And his market, by the way, uh, uh, of the 2,500, whatever the base is, most of them are coming from the mountain beyond. Yeah. Uh, so he wants to bring the, 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 it makes sense to put the arena where your market is as well. And we also know that the, uh, the Lime Ridge is a very uh, accessible uh, location with the Lincoln Alexander being right there and you got Rymo. Uh, so access is, is probably even more accessible than our downtown. How do you convince your council colleagues to at least consider this? Well, I think their mind is pretty made up, but I think there's a lot of new councillors and, and they don't have the history uh, that others do, and others never support the NHL uh, piece anyway, so I, I don't think that's relevant uh, to their um, contemplation of this whole issue. And then there's people like me that uh, see, a, see a larger picture, and uh, like I said, I've, I've listened to so many people talk about you fight for what you dream. like You, you, you live the dream. You fight for that dream by, by giving this completely... Like completely shutting yourself out by building a ten thousand uh, 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 seat arena downtown. To me, that just that just doesn't make sense. 
you've had some conversations, and I, I, I'm not asking you to give name specific counselors, uh, but I know you've had conversations in the counselors' offices and others about this. I mean, that's that's what happens in any office situation. You start talking about the issues of the day and and the ones that are right before you, and certainly the arena is right before you now. Do you get the sense that some of these people on council, some of your colleagues, are willing to, to lose the major tenant and just say, look, you know, Mr. Analog, you play by our, our way or no way? Uh, my, my sense right now is it's a huge uphill battle for the position I'm playing for. Um, so without question, this is going to be, uh, uh, it's, right now it feels like a stacked deck, and, and, and many of my colleagues' uh, minds are already made up. And my, and my concern is, is that I, it's with a faulty, uh, very light, uh, not really deep uh, uh, study from a consultant uh, that really isn't truly representative of what's going on because there's not a lot of examples of it, and that's the problem. So we are taking a bit of a shot in the dark here. The other element to this is is a, a planning reality, and you touched on this. I mean, you've sat on the planning committee for years. Uh, when I was on council, I was always on the planning and economic development committee, and we, I think we both have a pretty good sense of, of, of process here. And is it fair to say, in your opinion, Terry, that there's probably no way uh, that they can actually get this thing done downtown in, in, within a two-year period. I mean, not just I don't just mean the planning of it, but I mean planning of it, zoning, everything else, maybe expropriation, and then, of course, construction. Our, our, our planning horizon right now for any you know, major development is 18 months. And that's why you, you got everything on, in, in, in City Hall today. So uh, it's just not realistic to suggest you could do this in two years, uh, and in fact, even five years. I mean, Mr. Andelar is suggesting that a business plan can be put together within 60 days. Uh, this is a guy who's done a lot of business and understands that, but that's probably only part of the battle, isn't it? Correct, correct. I mean, like you said, there's uh, uh, first you have to have willing, but you've got to find a footprint. You know, that's parking. That's that's the size the size you need to accommodate this type of arena. Two, you have to have willing developers. Three, you have to have the land. Four, you have to have the capital, the dollars to pay. And, uh, and find uh, their planning consequences and possible expropriation issues uh, to ensure that you uh, do it right. So those are a lot of complex issues that can uh, uh, certainly be applied in the ointment on any five-year time frame. Are there council colleagues uh, that are holding out on this and because they're expecting that possibly uh, we could be successful with the Commonwealth bid and try to marry these two ideas? Uh, I don't get a sense of that. I, I, I think people are just tired of, of the issue, and they're tired of subsidizing uh, the, uh, the cops call team currently, and it's tired, and at some point, I think we got five years maybe left or so in the cops call team before we have to make some major investments. So the issue is do we continue play, uh, uh, spending good money after bad? I think that's really part of the, the, the push here. Well, uh, put the coffee on, Terry. I think that meeting Wednesday is going to take quite a long time. It's going to be interesting to see how your colleagues respond. It will be. All right. Thanks, as always. Appreciate your time, Terry. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's uh, West Mountain Councilor Terry Whitehead with a bit of a different take. Uh, he wants to build the arena up at Lime Ridge Mall because he wants to keep the downtown reserved for the possibility of an NHL franchise. Not so sure that he's going to get a whole lot of support for that idea. I, I do think that, and I was one of the biggest proponents for that idea, but uh, I think that ship has sailed. And, yeah, we were very, very active and proactive in the Make It 7 campaign a few years ago. Remember we did our show from the top of Jackson Square and we had the big rally? And the NHL, listen, they did Make It 7. Just the seventh was Winnipeg, not Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, the, just talking about the arena issue as we were a couple of minutes ago. Not the only big issue 
that uh, council's dealing with these days. There is still, of course, what's going to be happening or supposed to be happening down in the waterfront, uh, Piers 6, 7, and I guess 8 for that matter as well. And this, this has been talked about for many, many, many years now, and it seemed as if they were coalescing a plan uh, that was going to be agreeable to most, if not all. And uh, it's called the Pier 6 and 7 Commercial Village Activation Plan. Uh, but not everybody's pleased with uh, how city staff are trying to roll this thing out. I want to bring Chad Collins, the accountant for Ward 5, into the conversation uh, because this is awfully critical to the development that's going to be happening there. Chad, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. This has been going on for a long, long time, and there's neighborhood concerns about this. You've had some concerns. Uh, the private sector have had some concerns. Uh, there's a, there was a debate about what kind of housing should go into all of these developments. Uh, should there be you know, affordable housing, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a very complex issue, but uh, I, this report, if I understand it, focuses to a great extent on the commercial activity. Is that right? It does, yes. And, and as you just suggested, I mean, apart from maybe the Red Hill Creek Expressway, uh, this this file has faced more hiccups, hurdles, and uh, obstacles than probably any other that we've dealt with over the years. And back in, uh, you know, it was 2003 or four that we passed the West Harbor uh, setting sail policy, mm-hmm. which was our, our blueprint and vision for the future. And then in 2010, Council supported the Recreational Master Plan, which essentially looked at the, the public amenities that would be offered on Piers um, uh, 6 and 7. And uh, part of that plan shows a commercial village, and um, and we're at the stage now. We're just wrapping up an, another OMB appeal on the waterfront, and uh, we're poised to now um, construct our own public amenities. The, our own um, uh, funds will be invested into the area for uh, for a new boardwalk, for um, open space area there, uh, public art, uh, landscaping, benches, all the good things that come with uh, with a with a public waterfront. And, uh, and the other part of that plan is the private investment that will come. And there are a number of development blocks, uh, smaller scale, obviously, than, than those that we're looking at in Pier 8, but they're development blocks nonetheless that the private sector are, uh, will be offered at some point in time. And, uh, and that will be a range of uh, commercial uses like shops and restaurants, and, as well as some limited uh, uh, residential uh, space on top. And so the, the report we're looking at today essentially suggests that we wait until the end of uh, the development of Pier 8. Um, and as you know, Bill, and you've covered this on your show, um, we, we have a successful proponent for Pier 8 now. There are nine development blocks that will see nine condominium towers in the range of uh, you know eight stories. And, and that, uh, that part of our plan, and it's driven by the private sector, will most likely realistically take 10 to 15 years to come to fruition for all of those buildings in a phased approach to be constructed, sold, developed and then um, we see the you know the commercial as well as the residential there this plan suggests that until there's um, until that uh, development is done that we should uh, go slow on pier six and seven um, you know wait until those new condominiums uh, are constructed and, and residents move in and then at some point in time in the future um, you know develop these lands and I, I just think we're selling the community short uh, that was never part of the plan in terms of um, a, a phased approach. And in fact, you know, we've long awaited private investment to date, you know, over the last 20 years, and you were part of that when you were on council. We've invested a lot of public money into the waterfront in terms of our trails, the the, the rink, um, the trolley, the boats, all those things. Have and, and it was all money well spent. I mean, we've seen the amenities, yeah, yeah. And, but and at some it, point you want that public money to attract private money. 
Correct, and that's exactly the point I'm making. So 20 years of public investment to get us to a point today where we're finally ready to hand the keys over on some on, on public lands uh, over to the private sector to develop. And, you know, the, the, uh, the plan suggests to, uh, to continue to wait. And I, ju- I just think, you know, you know, all signs point to a recession on the horizon, not just here but else, elsewhere uh, south of the border and in other parts of the world. And I think the longer we wait, um, you know, the it's just it's it's another delay and another setback on this file that is the West Harbor Development Plan. I, I got the sense because I've talked to a number of the stakeholders. I mean, you've been on the show many times talking about this, and I've talked mm-hmm. to residents associations. I've talked to some people in the private sector. And I, I'm not naive enough to think, hey, we're almost at the finish line here because there's still a great deal mm-hmm. of work to be done here. But I thought that there were starting to at least some consensus was starting to be formed by all of those stakeholder groups that you know what, okay, we're okay. Well, there's a, a couple of fine tuning things, but we seem to be sort of on the same page now. Why would staff? Yeah, I, why would staff just simply without hitting the brake on it? But they're certainly changing yeah. gears. Yeah, and there's no doubt there's going to be a little bit of a delay. So I, I concur with the fact, and in fact, it was my suggestion at committee to say, look, these lands are going to be vacant six, seven, and eight for a number of years to come. Even if you were to sell those properties tomorrow, it would take a year or two at minimum for a private sector entity to put their plans together, their financing together, and then get a building up and a tenant or tenants in place. So I, I'm, I'm not lost on, on, on those timelines. And, I, and I, my suggestion was, let's look for temporary opportunities to have vendors in, to put some tents up. Some of those um, uh, carts that we've seen or those uh, rail cars that we've seen, Bill, in other communities that are used on waterfronts, where vendors come in and they're they're selling their wares, or or someone selling under a tent, um, like a festival almost, uh, food and drinks. And so I, I'm I'm perfectly okay with that. And as you just noted, you know we're we're nearing the finish line in terms of the um, of the appeals that are on the plan uh, on the plan. So I, I'm I'm fine with a year or two, but this report says let's lock in for three, two optional years as renewal. And the strongest point in this in this um, recommendation in the report today says that it's premature and let's let Pier 8 happen first. If I walk us down the road of the Pier 8 development, as I just noted, we're probably a decade to 15 years away from the entire pier coming to fruition. So I'm, I, I think the time is now to allow the private sector to come in. You just had another counselor on talking about private sector investment and taking advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves. I think this one... Um, we've waited long enough, and um, and I think that there are a number of private entities who, if given the opportunity, would jump at the chance to develop on our waterfront. And it's something that we've seen in other communities, uh, the communities that are larger than Hamilton, it, you know, who are on the waterfront, uh, very common to see a lot of private sector investment. And, in fact, you know, I think we'll reach a point where there'll be some pressure for private and sector investment and, and we'll be at a point where we're trying to fend them off of, from public lands. And that's, you know, traditionally, that's where you get at when, when you start to see some success on the waterfront. You start to see development pressure for lands that aren't even zoned for commercial uh, um, enterprises. And, and I think that's where we're headed. We're, we're at a point now where we've invested tens of millions of public uh, dollars into the waterfront, and it's time to allow the private sector to make some small investments up front and some larger ones down the road. 
the, a couple of things about this, and time the time frame I think is very important as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the idea of attracting uh, private sector investment, Chad, which is key to this whole thing, as it was with the arena project. And I don't want to get in too deeply into that again, yep. but but yep. Th- these things aren't going to happen unless the private sector steps up and says, "Yeah, we're we're going to play on, on with you guys on this." Uh, and for the longest time, the city had a lot, a very, very difficult time trying to attract that private sector development down there because there was nothing else going on. I mean, the trail, the waterfront Correct. trails, all these things were fabulous. But but the, the, the investors that you need to attract and probably will attract down there don't need to wait for Pier 8 to be done. Uh, they, they buy into two things, vision and activity. And if you've got both of those things going, then they say, yeah, we want to play ball with you. But if you're doing nothing, they're going to go mm-hmm. someplace else. No, absolutely. And, you know, even if it took them a little bit of extra time, Bill, to develop these properties, at least they're in private hands. At least they're paying taxes on them. And and we're recovering some of the funds that we've put into the waterfront to date. And, you know, for the longest time, it's been, you know, Williams Coffee Pub that's been owned by the Waterfront Trust has kind of been the only game in town down there. And then, of course, Sarcoa came afterwards. But, it, but pu- private sector investments are kind of few and far between. And we're now finally at the point where those uh, parcels of land are, have been given the green light from a planning perspective. Um, the, the private sector now can come in and, and make those investments, and they can determine, based on their own information that they have and their own studies that they've conducted, uh, how best to develop those properties and along what timelines. Uh, keeping them in the public realm and, and in public hands uh, for another three, five, ten years just doesn't make a lot of financial sense, and it certainly doesn't make a lot of planning sense. And that was not the vision that Council had in 2010 when we passed this plan. And, and no one, to be clear, Bill, no one anticipated a 10-year delay with planning appeals. Uh, so to add that on top of you know all the other hurdles that we've already faced, I think just screens for the private sector to come in now and, and try to make a goal of it. Did, did Council, or staff rather, I'm sorry, Chad, did staff actually sh- indicate any justification why they wanted to do this? I mean, obviously they've got a, a concept here. Uh, and it's, I, I, I mean... <laughs> The criticism here, I go back to can you walk and chew gum at the same time. You, you don't need to do one and then the other. You can do both. Yeah, no, they've uh, they've provided some information in the report that speaks to, um, you know, it's, it's premature along the lines of, as I mentioned, the Pier 8 development is still uh, still needs to be done. Um, they, they talked about a commercial market study that they've undertaken that says, you know, if, um, if in fact these lanes come up prematurely, they may not be successful. Um, yeah, so they they have listed some some issues in the report, and I would just I would just say that um, you know if the private sector doesn't feel they can make a go of it, then they won't purchase the lands and they they won't bid on it. And unless we put it out to market, we'll never know. And um, and and I, you know, there there we've invested tens of millions of dollars on this file. At some point in time, the sale of these lands will assist the city in recouping some of the costs that we've put um, we've invested up front in this process. And so six and seven, while not the most valuable lands, they are on the waterfront, and 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 uh, they they do have some value to them. Pier eight will be the bulk of the the monies that come back to us, and and that certainly will as- assist. But um, and the, the other issue we'll talk about today, Bill, is that this plan is even without being out to tender on the pub- public realm um, components, it's eleven million dollars over budget. So the committee um, has some some work to do. And I think getting the private sector involved sooner rather than later will help us um, curb some of those budget overages and variances that we're looking at. And we'll provide Hamiltonians with other opportunities other than the Williams Coffee Pub, which has done a great job over the years, but provide a a mix of commercial uses 
and uh, and choice for people, for families, individuals, and couples who want to visit the waterfront. Yeah, but even the folks at Williams have got to be looking around saying it's getting kind of lonely down here. I mean, the, you know, the crowds yeah, the absolutely. crowds are there, but yeah. you know, we we talked years ago at a planning meeting one time. But you know, they said how to rejuvenate areas and turn the lights on. Well, they, you don't need to turn the lights on here, but you need to have activity and draw people down there. And you, I, I like this idea that you're bringing up right now. Even if these are temporary things, it creates activity. Mm-hmm. It creates a, a reason for people to go down there and, and be habit-forming for them to go down there. Hey, that, that, these guys are here. This booth is here. This booth is here. It's got to be seasonal anyway, so why not just put that in there now and start to create that traffic? Yeah, and, and you know, we've long lamented that other communities have passed us by. And, and this plan, as I mentioned, this plan was 2010. We're a decade into it. Um, I just think more delays, Bill, is is going to discourage the private sector. I think it sends the wrong message out to the development community, and um, and I think we can do better. And and uh, you know, again, I I commend staff for coming forward to say let's make temporary use of these lands. I think a year to two years is reasonable. But when you start talking five years, and then after that, suggest that after period is constructed and we have some kind of a residential base there to support these businesses, then it's a go. I think these businesses, and I think uh, Williams, and there's probably some other opportunities down there, I think these businesses can be supported not just from people who will end up living on Pier 8. They will be supported by people who currently live in the North End neighborhood, and they'll be supported by people from across the city and outside of our community who regularly visit the waterfront. We we know now that we're, we have hundreds of thousands of people visiting not just the West Harbor, but my own uh, East End uh, trail that we have, and so there is a customer base there already. I'm confident that the, the numbers of, uh, of people who are visiting will be able to sufficiently support an ice cream shop or a small coffee shop or someone who's selling something along the water's edge. I think the capacity is there. I don't think we need a market study for that. These aren't, uh, you know, the, these aren't large uh, commercial entities. These are very small, probably mom-and-pop businesses um, that will eventually hopefully be on our waterfront for years to come. And I and I think we should, instead of be putting up uh, hurdles in front of this opportunity, I think we should be rolling out the red carpet and doing everything we can to try to help uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners make a goal of it. Well, because let's face it, I mean, the, this is a chicken and egg thing. They're, they're saying don't do the commercial thing until you have the residential all done. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you do the commercial first, that might attract the residential and, and actually accelerate the, the number of units that are going to be built there. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, I mean, you look at, for instance, in the summertime, you, you know, Queen's Key down in Toronto Waterfront. Now, they've done a pretty mm-hmm. lousy job with their waterfront, but that's one area where they got it right. Uh, don't tell me that most of the people that congregate down there in the summertime live in that neighborhood. They don't. Uh, we were no. up in Barrie this summer. They've got a gorgeous waterfront, what the, what the work that yeah. they've done there, too. Same idea. People from all over the region go down to that waterfront because of the activity and the beauty that's there. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to build residential. You just need to put attractions down there so somebody from Ancaster or Glanbrook or, or anywhere in this community would say, yeah, I want to get down to Hamilton's waterfront. It's gorgeous down there. That's it. And they have the customer base there now, Bill. I mean, if you're on our own trails, you see the number of people that are there. You know, there are lots of seniors visiting during the summer, and um, and so the the customer base is there. And 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 again, uh, you know, the, these are small operations we're talking about, and and we're talking about four or five buildings at most. And so I I, I don't again I don't know what the reluctance is. It, it's it works in other communities. Um, our plan was that as soon as we had the 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 plan was a, a go from a from a planning perspective, the plan always was to put these lands up for sale have the private sector move in and, and start offering the community something different than what we see today. 
and um, and I just think it sends the wrong message to the development community to to find ways and means in which to hold this development up. Well, there's got to be some activity. That's all there is to it. Uh, you know, yeah. use the example of the expressway, and for years and years, nothing seemed to be going on. We know that behind closed doors, there's a lot of stuff going on. But for mm-hmm. the people that would drive by that site every day saying, this thing's never going to get done. And I'd hate for them yeah. to have that same attitude about what's happening down on the waterfront because this is, this is you only got one chance to get this right. And and That's there's it. a lot of people that are looking forward to this to either buy down there, live down there, or at least have fun down there, live, work, and play, as as we say with most neighborhoods, the ones that we're developing these days. But if, yeah. as long as it sits empty, developers may go someplace else. Potential residents may go someplace else. Potential businesses may go someplace else because they say, "Well, there's nothing going on here." Yeah, and our you know our ultimate goal was to make it a people place, and and so you can only offer so many recreational amenities before someone starts, uh, you know, looking for to other areas for those commercial components that um, you know make up a, a good part of water, successful waterfront developments across not just our country but but elsewhere. So I, you know, I, I'm trying to find ways and means in which to convince uh, my colleagues and certainly our staff that the sooner the better in this regard. Um, and I, you know, I just I don't agree with the with the reasons that have been listed here in terms of why we shouldn't be going ahead with it. And and again, on top of that, you know, we'll be dealing with a, a very um, uh, con- uh, controversial issue today in terms of the 11 million dollars uh, overage. And so that, on top of this, I just think speaks to the need to have the private sector invest. Uh, spending their own dime and uh, and creating jobs and, and tax assessment—two things that we we want not just on the waterfront, but uh, you know, in all areas of the city. Yeah, you'd like to see a little money on the other side of the ledger too, wouldn't you? Yep, yep, absolutely. Chad, good luck with us absolutely. this afternoon. We'll see how it develops. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the time. That's Award Five Councilor Chad Collins. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it's uh, generally agreed that uh, the Russians uh, hacked and uh, tried to have influence on the last U.S. election. Well, just about everybody except people in the White House. I, I think I agree to that finally. Uh, and their election's not till next year. And uh, as it was stated in the Mueller report, the U.S. officials need to be cognizant of the fact that the Russians uh, will do that once again. But as a warm-up to that, it looks as if they're sticking their nose into the Canadian election. A uh, recent report out here says that... Uh, uh, Russia could be meddling in Canada's election to to growing interest in the Arctic. It's it's a bit of a different idea, and I'm not so sure that they're really trying to change the outcome of the election, but they certainly want to change people's attitudes. Uh, let's uh, talk about this with Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, great to have you with us again. Thanks for the time. <laughs> Good morning, Bill. We, this is this is... I think to be expected, isn't it? I mean, the Russians were involved in the U.S. election. They were involved in the Brexit referendum a few years ago. Uh, they're, they're really flexing their, their, their muscle when it comes to this sort of yeah. activity. And all over uh, Europe as well, as kind of as a warm-up for Brexit. And then that was a warm-up for the U.S. And now we're, we're talking about our own election. <clears throat> so the <clears throat> there's a bunch of issues involved here. One is, are we any more ready than... Um, we were before to handle with an increasing threat of of interference in a multiplicity of ways in our own election. We're in a whole new era where foreign interest, if they so choose, can do things. And then there's the whole issue of the Arctic and Russian interest and competition there. And, uh, and what you started out with, just how reliable are elections? How... How tainted was the Brexit vote? How tainted was the American vote? Remember, there was only, what, 100,000 votes total in three states 
that determined the last Amer- American election, which was heavily influenced or heavily attacked in various ways by uh, by cyber means in advance. Yeah, and, and I know that was one of the uh, the, the ways that, well, some of the people at Fox and others were saying, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. They can't, the U.S. can't be swayed like that. You can't sway a nation to vote. You don't need to. All you had to do is a, a, a few people in Michigan, a few people in Ohio, and it's they do it with disinformation and, and some false stories, and we already know what a number of those were. Uh, and obviously they're at play. They did the same thing in Brexit, too. There were false numbers that were thrown out there about how great this was going to be and, and Britain was actually going to benefit from this sort of stuff. And and essentially, the day after the referendum, as you know, of course, the Lafarge and the others simply said, hey, we were just kidding. Uh, we just made all that stuff up. Uh, but it's a little too late then, uh, just as it is too late after an election to say, well, maybe we should have been a little more cognizant of what was happening here. What we have is a whole new era now that we are increasingly aware of and increasingly attempting to come to grips with in terms of how things actually work. I mean, it's dirt cheap compared to building, you know, an aircraft carrier or a few stealth bombers. It's very inexpensive to set up a, a cyber capacity, implement it, and particularly when so far we've been less than aware of the hybrid nature of it. So sometimes it's by trolls, sometimes it's by direct interference. Often it's on Facebook and other kinds of social media. In the case of the U.S., the, uh, <laughs> the Russians are allegedly, uh, pretty conclusively, it's shown they actually set up floats in parades <laughs> so, with uh, cages to lock up Hillary Clinton. So creating dissension for whatever purposes among uh, potential enemies, or at least those that you want to weaken, is increasingly cheap, sophisticated, and hard to counter. The author of the study, uh, Sergei Suhankin, uh, yes. actually states in, in here that he says, look, at, uh, to have the impact on the outcome of the election may it be a little more difficult in Canada than it was in the United States. Uh, he says that uh, because we are not as polarized uh, yes. politically uh, and societally, I'm not so sure, well, maybe not as bad, but we, we certainly so have some of the same symptoms. Yes, he uh, actually, the longer report is is addressing the general issues that you and I are now discussing, the role of cyber, and then he says, well, what, what does that mean for Canada? And, you know, he, he's using uh, Russian sources. He's got uh, extraordinary access to material that those of us who are not Russian speakers natively uh, have. So he's, he's bringing a perspective that, uh, and ringing an, ringing an alarm bell that it's not just Russia generally around the world, it's us in particular, and in particular they have an interest in the Arctic, and therefore they might interfere in our elections. But it isn't to get a particular result, it's just to uh, raise awareness back in um, Russia, to, it's part of their uh, rally around the flag, but also Russia's angry at us over Crimea. And Russia's angry over us because we have uh, joined NATO in Latvia, to monitor things, so they are—they have reasons to be um, choosing Canada as a target, involving, uh, among other things, 
their increasing interest in the Arctic. And it's interesting to note, uh, at least according to this report anyway, that uh, that some of the misinformation that, that's being disseminated at this stage is actually, as you mentioned, uh, going back to Russia. And it's it's to curry public favor with that population, which, by the yeah. way, is, in, is kind of on a, a, because of the Moscow elections, is they've got their own problems there right now. Uh, but, but it's basically to change their, or to form their opinions, I guess, about Canada, about Ukraine, right. the justification for the the invasion and and the thing, subsequent uh, backlash that they got, of course, from uh, from a number of other people. Uh, so th- this is a double-edged sword that they're dealing with here. Yes, they it, it faces inward, faces outward. If they need to present a coherent picture at home of a brave historic nation under attack and uh, has to defend itself, and that illegitimate means are being used to portray Russia in a negative light. And look, here's all this stuff from abroad. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, they draw on the, it's interesting, uh, we overlook this a lot here. They draw heavily on the anti-fascist nature of what they are standing up for. Russia has been subject to fascist activities. You remember the Germans attacked. I think we totally have underestimated in the West the impact of the Second World War and the siege of Stalingrad. And, you know, the, there was real cost. There was real pain there. And the preservation of that kind of uh, we were attacked we we are the defenders against fascism and therefore anybody that's against us we, we can show they're fascist and that includes canada and they attack our foreign minister on spurious grounds on that so it part of that is you know rally around at home and have a coherent uh, picture at home totally ignoring the fact that russia meanwhile is supporting the farthest right groups they can all across europe <laughs> financially as well as in uh, cyber means apparently. So uh, at abroad, they have very specific goals and very specific means of implementing them in terms of against Canada, as this report suggests. And they make it personal, too, don't they? I mean, they certainly they did do. in the U.S. election, where they af- went after Hillary Clinton. Uh, and yes. but and and they clearly took a side on that. I mean, they did not want her to win uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of the, I think, date all the way back to some of her policy and initiatives when she was Secretary of State. Uh, but I, I guess they also looked at Trump as, as an easy mark, and it's obviously turned out to be that way. Uh, but they're making a personal against Freeland and even against Trudeau, too. Yes. Uh, I think it's important to underline that Canada has, as, as this report is trying to do, wake up Canada. That's really the nature of this report. There's issues here. There's, you better know about this. It's coming. It's happening. It's happened in the past. And the report, interestingly, traces the evolution from... Soviet era era propaganda to post-Soviet to Putin and how he's using it. But uh, it should be noted that uh, as part of that wake-up, in January, the the government of Canada did announce a whole string of measures to say, yes, we are aware that there's a cyber threat to us, and a hybrid threat is that. It's not just cyber. It's it's, uh, then they get into social media, then they use intelligence and other things. So uh, in January, there there were a raft of measures announced uh, which led, among other things, to what the report alludes to, and the, the press has picked up on the appointment of a kind of a watchdog group of senior civil servants. They're not there, as the government says, to referee the the, the election, but it's a critical uh, incident report group, nonpartisan, so that if something does crop up, this group of people, and they're very powerful individuals in, in the, across the government, can at least be aware of it and draw attention to the fact our elections are being interfered with. But there was also a cybersecurity center 
set up within our intelligence services. There's a, uh, there's a multiplicity of efforts to say, look, we, we are aware there's an issue. We are doing something about it. And Canada had better be aware of this. And one of the things they're doing, the government is doing, is putting, I think, $7.1 million into a public awareness campaign of digital interference in our elections. Which is absolutely necessary, by the way, because one of the, the things that really sticks in my craw about this is the platforms that they're being used here, Facebook, uh, in, uh, things of yes. this nature, and Twitter, have, have also said that, well, yeah, we're going to try to screen this stuff. But they said even if we identify it, we're not going to tell anybody that it's, it's – and, and it's, they say it's still up to the, to the reader to make that decision whether or not it's, it's fake news or whether it's uh, you know, that, that sort of activity or whether it's truism, uh, which is the point of hacking in the first place, uh, to make it look realistic. And if, the, if it's, that, it's not helping matters at all, so the government really has to step up here because they're not really getting much cooperation from those platforms. Yes, and there's a lot of um – Across the world, there's, there's uh, concerns being raised about what do we do about that. Europe is uh, perhaps the, the strongest in saying there's responsibility here, and there's going to be financial penalties and legal penalties if you don't uh, don't step up your act. And we may be lagging behind in that regard. But yeah, so d- digital literacy on our part is certainly part of the uh, the challenge. Incidentally, one small measure that Canada has said why this report, among others, says that Canada is not as susceptible is we still have paper ballots. So if there's an effort to actually interfere with the electronic voting of results, we have backup. We, we have a way to deal with that one aspect of election interference. Yeah, well, I can vouch for that because I'm usually the guy that's here till about one thirty in the morning until the winners are declared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, doing, the, so, doing yeah. our election night coverage and then back in here at 3.30 the next morning. Uh, and there are there, there were times, i got to tell you, when I say I wish we had electronic voting, maybe not so much because of what's going on these days. Uh, the government well, you is... Do both. You, you just have to have a backup. Of, if you think there's an issue with the one that is the electronic side, which is susceptible, um, unless it's hardened, it's susceptible, so then it's nice to have the backup just in case. Very quickly, i got to ask you about a recent development uh, south of the border while I've got you here, and I'm glad you had some time for us today. Uh, Donald Trump canceled a meeting with Taliban leaders uh, because of a, yeah. a, a terrorist attack that went on. Right. This is a guy that spent the last, I was going to say three years, uh, long before that, criticizing Obama for trying to have discussions with the Taliban. And it's wrong, dead wrong, he said, the worst thing they could do, unless he was going to do it. Because this apparently was something that nobody knew much about. Uh, he canceled it, but nobody knew that was happening. So he was ready to have those discussions. Yes, well, well, my first reaction, well, first of all, uh, I noted uh, in advance that Pompeo planned to be on all the morning talk shows on Sunday, and I thought, hmm, what's up? Yeah. And, that's, and sure, sure enough, there was something up, and uh, my first reaction was, well, he said that meeting was going to happen, but given what we know about him, he announces all kinds of things. Was it, was it real? And apparently it was real. There was going to be a meeting. Uh, whether the Afghan government was truly involved, yes, apparently they were, and that's an important breakthrough. But now that's been canceled. I think the mystery of the cancellation remains, let us say, less than clear. Uh, we, I think there's a certain amount of, um, we only see, see the tip of the iceberg or what the spin is. So we, we don't, there's a mystery here. We don't know what's going on. I happen to have been following the Afghan situation from its inception, uh, back under the Russians and the Soviets and so forth. So, Afghanistan continues to suffer, and there doesn't seem to be a diplomatic way out. This is America's longest war ever. It is costing a lot of money, and that's, money seems to be the concern for the American president. He doesn't like spending money, he says. I don't know where this is going to go. Apparently, there was 
some progress actually made uh, on a deal, but that deal may have been a very bad deal indeed. It did not involve the Afghan government in the negotiations until potentially maybe in uh, Camp David, but we seem now to be, whatever was going on, we seem to now be back where we were. The rumor that I'm hearing from a couple of different sources now on social media is that uh, this meeting was going to be canceled long before the terrorist attack. They just didn't like the way it was going. Any any yeah, credibility uh, to that? Yeah, who knows? I mean, that, that's why I say there's still a mystery as to the nature and cause of either the setting up of the meeting or the canceling of the meeting. I don't think we have the full story on that. What it does mean is that the war in Afghanistan continues. And uh, remember, we had Camp Julian. We had, we had, Canada had a very significant engagement in the Afghan conflict and paid for it in both blood and treasure. And we have a highway of heroes, we call, mm-hmm. where people were, uh, our, 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 our heroes were brought back. And uh, we had to honor that. So Canada has, has had a deep engagement in the Afghan conflict as part of the Western alliance. And that Western alliance, in a sense, takes us back to this subject. Canada is part of a broader democratic Western values, internationalist, uh, rule of law country. And that is apparently under direct attack by those forces inimical to that, uh, which apparently includes both Russia and China and North Korea. And that's really what's at stake, apart from the particulars of our election. The broader picture is we have to find a way to continue to promote who we are in a changing world. Quickly, one of the the mantras, of course, by Elizabeth Warren and some of the other Democratic uh, contenders at this stage is to bring those troops home. Uh, Given the scenario right now, is is that really practical? Uh, James Mattis is (laughs) uh, now promoting his book. Mm -hmm. He will not talk whatsoever about Trump, but he will talk about issues. And I think there's no serious military and strategic analyst who said a sudden withdrawal of American troops is going to lead to a good result in Afghanistan. It's likely to lead to something worse. And remember the whole reason for going in. We're, we're at the anniversary of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And that originated in Afghanistan because of the protection by the Taliban of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda remains a force. We, we, we still live in a, a world of international terrorism Afghanistan was uh, in the middle of all that, but we also committed to, in Afghanistan, uh, protection of women and children, and uh, protection of Western values, basically, broadly. Uh, precipitous withdrawal of troops when you announce it in advance is probably not a good strategic move. Well, uh, we'll see what the next steps are and who's calling the shots in the White House these days. Ellie, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science uh, at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.